Today's scripture reading can be found on page 1022 in your Black Pew Bible. It is 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really good to see everyone's faces this morning. I want to open, <clears throat> I want to open with a quick story from John's Gospel. If you've grown up in church, you'll be familiar with the scene. Uh, it's before dawn, it's dark outside, and Peter decides to go fishing. This is at the end of the Gospel. And a few of the disciples decide to join him, and as the sun's rising, they see somebody on the shore, but they don't know who it is. And whoever it is, he's interested in what they're up to. He's interested in what they're doing, and he calls out to them, children, have you caught anything yet? And as you can imagine, this completely empty boat with a group of grown men in it are being asked if they caught anything, and they reply sheepishly, I imagine, that they haven't, that they haven't gotten anything, and they say no. And then the stranger on the shore decides to kind of give them some advice, and he says, you should try putting your nets out on the other side of the boat. So they do. And their net in that moment is filled too full for them to even pull into the boat and something clicks in that instant and they realize the stranger is Jesus. The disciples make their way back to the shore and then in the story, what comes next is Jesus rebuilds 
and restores and recommissions a broken man. Peter had denied Jesus three times the night of Jesus' trial. And on this beach over a charcoal fire, Jesus says three times, do you love me? And Peter says three times in, in different ways, you know, Lord, that I love you. And as it happens, Peter is restored and his fellowship with Jesus is healed and he's recommissioned for the work that Jesus has called him to do. But then Jesus says an interesting um, sentence to Peter. He says, hey, Peter, when you were young, you wore whatever you felt like wearing. And you went wherever you felt like going. But there's a day coming in your life when somebody else is going to dress you for something that you don't want to do and take you somewhere that you don't want to go. And then in verse 19 of chapter 21 in John, it says that Jesus was talking about how Peter was going to glorify God with his death. And Jesus ends this interaction with, you follow me. Now, all this happens between Peter and Jesus and then Peter just being told how he was, a, he was going to die. Okay, He asked Jesus a question, a, a natural question. It seems like maybe he's wondering if anybody else is going to have to die like he's going to have to die. And then he sees John, so he asks Jesus, he says, hey, what about this disciple? What about this man? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, what is that to you? Even if John never dies, what is that to you? Don't worry about John. Peter, you follow me. So in our letter this morning, what's that, what's that got to do with where we are in 1 John? Well, the Apostle John in this letter is shepherding a flock of sheep that he cares about. Last week, we saw him make specific reference to people who were dividing and stirring things up. People who are denying Christ, detractors or seceders or separatists. He calls them antichrists because they are antichrist. But this whole book demonstrates how John pastors these people. So maybe he learned it from the story in John's gospel. Maybe he watched these interactions between Jesus and Peter. Maybe not. Who knows? There's no way we can know. But John is more interested... He's more interested in this book, in your relationship with Jesus, than he is about the arguments that these detractors or separating people have, okay? He's more interested in you being connected to and following Jesus than he is in a detailed polemic or a detailed argument against their doctrine. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Decent and right and righteous polemical arguments and assessments, I'm not saying that those aren't necessary. Those are necessary at times, and we see this in, in, um, in places in the scriptures like 1 Corinthians, and we see it in Paul's letter to the Galatians. But in this letter, in 1 John, the Apostle John wants to focus less on why the people who left were wrong and more on encouraging the people who've stayed People like you and me 
to not be distracted from what's most important. You follow Jesus. John doesn't talk a ton about the deceivers or the separatists or the seceders' arguments. He organizes his thoughts and he aims the bulk of his energy at the people who are still here. He wants for them what I want for us. I want you to remain in him. I want you to abide in Christ. The sheer volume of the way John talks about both abiding and love outshines all the other biblical authors. In the four books that John wrote, the word shows up for abide 66 times. Your abiding will necessarily be connected to your ability to believe and your ability to embrace and love all the truth and all the promises in the scriptures. So that's how we're going to arrange our time this morning in four movements. I'm going to talk about how we abide in him for confidence, how we abide in him for assurance, how we abide in him for sanctification in our own lives and hearts, and how we abide in him for the sake of love. Before I jump into that, I'm gonna pray for us. So would you join me as I pray? Would you pray for me as I pray for us? Jesus, would you so be on display this morning that we don't see anything else? Beyond whatever we walked in with, beyond whatever's consuming our hearts and minds, whatever's consuming our imagination, beyond all of those things, Jesus Christ, would you outshine them all? Would you arrest us and capture us in such a way that it's hard for us to pay attention to other things in our lives because we're so distracted by you, by your glory and your kindness and your majesty and your sacrifice and your mercy and your grace and your recreating transformational power through the Holy Spirit in our lives. Would we be so distracted by you shining that other things are diminished in our lives? The other relationships in our lives are rightly ordered because the relationship we have with you is tightly interwoven and connected like a branch on a tree. It's, it's abiding. So would you do that this morning? We ask through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, abide in him for our confidence. And I get this straight from verse 28 where it says, and now little children abide in him so that abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. The second coming of Christ is what's in view here. That's what's meant by his coming or his appearing. And here, John says to abide in Jesus so that you're not ashamed when he gets here. Abide in Jesus so you're not ashamed when you see him. 
Don't get caught on the last day in a way that would cause you to shrink away. That's the picture of being ashamed. That's how shame works. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the, the very same thing in the garden. God says, look around. Everything you see, all the fruit trees, everything you see here is for you. Every seed and every fruit-bearing tree, all the food on all the trees is what I've provided for you. Eat anything you want except this one tree. But the serpent was crafty and he twisted things around and he, he got Adam and Eve to see the God who made the garden with one rule. He twisted it and the picture, he gave them a picture of a kind of um, miserly or selfish or stingy God who holds out on us instead of the exact opposite. A God of generosity, a father who loves us. So the serpent deceives Eve and she eats and then she gives some to her husband and he eats. He was right there with her and then their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. And so they hid. They shrunk away. They covered themselves and hid. The God Adam once walked with, all of a sudden Adam is hiding from him. Sin and shame break fellowship in this moment. Sin is the thing that stains us and keeps us from God's presence. You can't abide in him and abide in your sin at the same time. Shame shrinks back. Shame shrinks away because sin contaminates the closeness of that relationship. Last week in our home, my oldest She's six. We, we had a moment where she was being just, just a little bit sneaky, sneaky about something. And it came out that she was trying to be sneaky with mom and dad. And she was kind of being borderline deceptive with us on purpose. And when I named it, when she realized that she wasn't getting away with it and that I knew what she was doing, she was ashamed and her countenance dropped. And her heart was crumpled up like an empty paper sack. And that wrecked me in that moment. You could see it on her face that she felt really far away in that moment. And she didn't know how to cross that gap. She didn't know how to cross that relationship Gap And this moment was a powerful picture for me of the gospel. It was such a picture of God's kindness in that moment. In that moment, I was crushed for her. And the reason I was is because I wanted her to know that she could confess, she could turn, she could repent and be forgiven, all the way forgiven. I wanted her to know that she could be totally forgiven. Romans 2 verse 4 tells us that it is God's kindness to us, God's kindness to us that leads us into repentance, not his desire to rub our noses in it. See, God isn't like us. He isn't insecure. He doesn't have anything he's trying to defend 
or anything that he needs to prove to us. He's not trying to put us down so that he can feel tall. He's not a bully. He's not trying to be strong and push us around so that he can feel strong and us feel small. He doesn't need to prove anything to us. It's the sin in our lives that takes the relationship that we have with God and gnarls it and twists it and ultimately it breaks it. And we shrink away in shame. I don't know who said it first, somebody, somebody way smarter than me, but somebody has said before that shame and guilt, they function kind of like spiritual nerve endings, right? In a fallen world, all shame isn't bad. In fact, shamelessness is way scarier than shame. In a fallen world, all shame isn't bad because God's kind to us. He gives us a sensitivity to sin and a sensitivity to shame. It stings. It stings morally in our hearts and souls. They say, ouch. And spiritually speaking, it's like touching a stove and it keeps us away from danger. Now, now let me be, let me be clear Christians don't have to live in shame. There's freedom in the gospel. There's freedom in confession and repentance and forgiveness, total freedom and wholehearted forgiveness, unimaginable forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that is difficult for us to wrap our brains around. But we don't want to shrink from Jesus on the day that he shows up. So here's the deal. Your shame... Your shame will be dealt with or it'll keep you separated from God. Only the gospel can deal with shame. And if you're harboring sin or harboring secrets that keep you burdened and weighed down, I want to say two things. That's the kind of thing, number one, that's the kind of thing that John's talking about when he doesn't want you to be ashamed at the day of the Lord's appearing. And number two, your relationships are suffering because of it. Your relationships are suffering because no one really knows you because you spend 90% of your time managing some secret or some harbored sin inside your heart. You're always someplace else. So you, you don't have to be, let me, let me be super, uh, super explicit. You do not have to be perfect to be here but if we're not honest about our sin, we aren't really here anyways. You don't need me to tell you that. You know what it feels like to be in some other world worried that you're gonna get caught or worried that someone's gonna find out or worried that if they really knew you, they'd be disgusted. Friends, you don't have to be perfect on the day of the Lord's appearing. That is not what this text is about. That is not the point, which is good news for us because we could never be perfect anyways. But you do want all the hidden places in your heart and soul. You want the doors to those places to be swung wide open. You want them to be unlocked before the Lord gets here. If you have a bunch of junk in your closet, guess what? So does everybody else. But the first step is to open the door. And let light shine in. He already knows what's in there. 
And he, he won't act surprised. He'll come toward you in that moment. So don't wait and be ashamed about it. Or this is a real tragedy. Don't live your whole life hiding and ashamed about something. Don't even live part of your life that way. And if that's you this morning, man, I would love to talk to you because I know what it feels like to believe that it's too late already. But friend, the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to you this morning again, and I get to be here this morning to remind you that it is not, it is never too late to be healed. And it's never too late to be set free. I had a friend, I had a friend leave the faith when I was in college, when I was about 19 or 20. This guy was a friend of my older brother's. I, uh, I looked up to this guy quite a bit, and I, and I really love him still, and I pray for him, but he left the faith, and when he did, he said something to me that I will never forget. He looked at me, and he said, yeah, Mark, bro, I'm out. I'm done. I don't want to live my life with a guilty conscience. And I pray all the time that that could be true for him. But there's only one way to do that. You can't run away from God to get free from a guilty conscience. The only way to get rid of a guilty conscience is for you to run straight to God and take it to him. You don't hide behind leaves or trees like Adam and Eve. You step out and show him your sin. You show it to him. You don't isolate yourself and pretend that you can take care of it on your own. You hook into Jesus. You attach yourself to Jesus. You latch onto him like a, tree, like a branch into a tree, and then you don't let go. Now, no one can take you out of his hand, so stop squirming. Quit fighting. Believe him. Receive his love for you, even when it's painful. That's freedom. That's the kind of freedom. He already knows what's inside our hearts, so stop trying to hide it from him. Instead, abide in him with honesty and a clear conscience and confidence, free from debilitating shame and free from paralyzing shame. And number two, abide in him for your assurance. Assurance. Chapter three, verse one says, see what kind of love, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. You see, your adoption as a child of God is God's idea. Your adoption as a child of God is God's sovereign choice to make you his child. You didn't twist his arm. You didn't impress him. You didn't prove that you were smart enough or funny enough or cute enough. He just chose you. Ephesians says in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious 
grace. So, so the ground of our adoption is not based on our performance. The love with which the Father has loved you, it has a foundation, it has a source, it has a grounding, and it isn't your grade card. You can't make God love you. You can't be pretty enough or successful enough or rich enough or funny enough because you being enough isn't the point in the first place. Grace is the point. To the praise of his glorious grace. Grace is the grounds for your adoption. We're saved by grace through faith. Grace is the ground and faith is the instrument. And even that faith is a gift. Your assurance can't come from your performance. Your assurance comes from the glorious grace of God. When you abide in him, your adoption becomes more precious to you every day. And his grace becomes more glorious to you every day. And your feeble faith is seen more as a treasured gift to you every day. John says, or Jesus says in John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. When we abide in Christ, we're so connected that his life is flowing into our life. Your assurance comes by virtue of that connection. Abiding in Christ means that you trust him. It means that you believe him. It means that you're convinced by him. You're moved by what moves him. As one pastor says, your life is coursing with the very life of God. This love from the Father through the Son doesn't merely get deposited into us. We aren't meant as Christians to be reservoirs of the love of God. The love of the Father through the Son flows by the power of the Holy Spirit like a fountain, like a spring. It keeps moving through us into, people, into other relationships in our lives. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there are good works that will show up by virtue of us abiding in him. If we're his children, he prepared works for us to be doing. We don't, we don't do them to be saved. We do them because we are saved. We aren't saved by good works, and we are saved to them. We are saved for good works. This is how the math works. Righteousness will flow out of our identity as children of God. The same grace that saves you sanctifies you. The grace of God is what you need for righteous living. It comes from the same vine. The same branch that only lives because it's connected to the vine only produces fruit from that same connection. Which brings me to movement number three this morning. Abide in him for your sanctification. By grace you were adopted. 
The Father aims his love at you like a cannon because of his free and sovereign choice. His love doesn't keep you where you are. It doesn't leave you where it finds you. It changes you. This is why all the talk about sin and lawlessness right here is so relevant. When you're abiding in Christ, you start to look like him and sound like him, even think like him. We have the mind of Christ, the scriptures tells us. And then in chapter three, verse two, it says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Don't get this backwards. Don't get this backwards. He's not saying, go get pure so that I'll hang out with you. Go clean everything up so I'm not embarrassed by you. Go figure everything out so I'm not frustrated by you. That's the grand strategy of the Bible to fight sin. For the the battles in your life, the temptations and the struggles, the, the grand strategy of the scriptures as you fight sin is abide in him. Stay there. Live in him. Dwell in him. Stay in him. That's how. That also means abiding in his word. The gospel of John chapter eight, verse 31 says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then in John 15, it says, if you abide in my word and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this, the father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. The fight for fruit in the Christian life, the fight for fruit in your life is the fight to abide. The fight for righteous living is the fight to abide. The fight for purity in your life is the fight to remain in Christ. The fight against sin in your life is the fight to stay attached to the vine. Receive, be connected, trust, endure, last. And the fight won't always be a fight. The race does have a finish line. You won't always be in the constant kind of internal battle in your heart against sin. One day you'll be something different, John tells us. What you will be hasn't been revealed, but you will be just like Jesus in a way that we can't really understand yet. He's pure, so we're becoming pure. He's righteous, so we're becoming more like him. We're becoming more righteous. He's sinless, so we're progressively killing more and more and more sin in our own lives. So notice the logic of these verses. One day, we'll be changed to be like Jesus, and he's pure, so we purify ourselves as we move toward that day when we're completely transformed from the inside out. There's this resemblance that emerges in the Christian life, this resemblance that emerges in our hearts and lives as we follow Jesus. And if there's zero resemblance, then there's no reason to believe that God is our Father. But you don't get that resemblance 
by being the best at following all the rules, you get that resemblance from abiding in the Son. Righteousness flows out of that connection. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning since the beginning. Sinning resembles a different dad. Lawlessness looks like a different person than Jesus. If God is your father and you abide in him, then you look like him. If the devil is your father, then you look like the devil. There's these two opposing pictures. This is the reason that when my daughter felt this shame in this moment where she had sinned, it was powerful for me. She felt the sting of sinning against her parents. And I was thrilled, like tears in my eyes, kind of thrilled at that moment. I was moved to see her own sin, the sin in her own heart hurt her. That's why I warn against shamelessness at the beginning. A seared conscience is way scarier than an ashamed conscience. If you're from God, you can't go on forever acting like you're from the devil. As one author put it, we live out who we are. It is inevitable. The truth is, is that we might be able to fool ourselves or fool everybody else for a little while, but eventually we do live out who we are. We will. We tend to think of ourselves in a certain light. Then we act in a way that proves that our assessment is wrong. We tend to see ourselves in this kind of positive light or think of ourselves as the exception to the rule. Listen to this quote from John Calvin, where he once said, quote, many would like to persuade themselves that they have this righteousness buried deep in their hearts while iniquity openly occupies their feet, hands, tongues, and eyes. But that reality, our inconsistency, places in our lives where we know we've been hypocrites, that's not hopeless for us this morning because the hope was never in you to begin with. So I don't want to discourage you. For John's readers, he doesn't want to discourage them either. He reminds them that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You can't fight your own fight against sin by yourself. It doesn't work. You see, we needed a certain kind of enemy. We needed a, an enemy that was already defeated. We needed a foe that had already been beaten. That's the only kind of battle that we can win, the kind that's already been won for us. And it has been won for us. And that's what God did. As John Stott puts it, he says, quote, the devil's works have already been deprived of their power. They've been gutted. They've been rendered inoperative, conquered, and overthrown. And he goes on, if then the whole purpose of Christ's first coming was to remove sin and to undo the works of the devil, Christians must not compromise with either sin or the devil or they'll find themselves fighting against Christ. So don't fight against him. Abide in him. 
Abide in the Son and in the Father. And abide for the sake of love. That's my fourth movement. In verse 9, John says, No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And then later in verse 10, it says, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so we see again that the apostle can't get very many verses without mentioning this kind of horizontal love and affection for brothers and sisters in the body again. He talks about it all the time. Next week we're going to open talking about this emphasis on love. But as we turn to conclude this morning, I want to encourage you to abide for the sake of love. We've, we've heard John say this kind of thing before. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Whoever says that they live in the light but hates their brother is lying and walking in darkness instead of light. So, so love for other Christians in particular, for believers, for brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for believers is a distinguishing mark of the Christian or it should be. And if you hate other Christians, man, that should alarm you. It should. Because, because love for the brothers marks us. It's okay if you find yourself hating other Christians and that, and that causes you to doubt whether or not you're walking in the light or walking in the darkness. As I thought about what or how to conclude today, one thing stood out more than any other for me. And so I want to leave, I want to leave you and me with an exhortation that we all, we love each other, but that we love each other in a particular way. I want to exhort us to love brothers and sisters in this church. And I want us, I want to exhort us to love them by being interested in their own abiding by being vested in the depth and the connection and the peace and the freedom and the wholeness and the healing that comes from abiding in Christ. I want to encourage you to have a vested interest in the abiding of your brothers and sisters in this place. I don't want to encourage you to judge them or criticize them or correct them as much as I want to exhort all of us to give a rip about their own connection to Jesus and whether or not it's growing deeper and fuller and richer as they walk with Christ. Love them by giving them more of Jesus. Love them by praying that they would see more beauty in Jesus. Love me by praying that I would be more captured and more arrested and more distracted by Christ than anything else in my life. We can love each other by giving other people our time. And that's real and good. And we can love each other by giving gifts to one another, and those are real and good. And we can love each other by cooking meals for one another. But there is a meal that we all need way more than frozen taco soup. There is a meal that we need way more than anything that you can provide for your neighbor or your friend or somebody in your small group.
What would it be like if the meal that we were most concerned that others get is the only meal that can truly satisfy their deepest hunger? Christ's body is true food and his blood is true drink. He is the bread of life. Having more of him is what you need most. Abiding in him is what you need most. Abide in Christ so that you're full of Christ to give to others. Abide in Christ so that you can be confident on the last day, open before him, confident on the last day, and completely unashamed. Abide in Christ for your assurance so that you know who your father truly is. Abide in Christ so that he increases and you and your sin progressively decrease. And abide in Christ for the sake of loving your brothers and sisters in this family with the kind of love that lasts forever. Fight for each of us to abide in his love. I read this week that Augustine once made a one-sentence summary of John's counsel from, from 1 John. And that's what I want to leave us with today. Augustine once said, in light of John's words, love, 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 and sin is undone. Let's pray.